please let's open our Bibles now to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're in the middle of studying his prayer in chapter 3. Tonight we'll consider verses 17 through 19. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. We all have the responsibility to live consistently with who we are in Christ. Consistency in living is a result of growth and is a mark of a maturing believer. It is not a mark of one who is in spiritual infancy. The more inconsistent we are with regard to the way that we live versus our position in Christ, the more inconsistent we are, most likely the more immature we are with regard to our faith. Now, the prayer that Paul prays that we study tonight, this magnificent prayer, expresses Paul's deep desire that we all come to a point in our lives where we truly comprehend the immensity of Christ's love for us, and because of the influence of that on our lives, the empowering nature of that, that we live accordingly with what we've learned. The prayer itself is divided into three parts. The first part we've already studied in verses 14 and 15, that is the address of the prayer. Paul expresses the respect that is due to God. The second part, the part that we're studying tonight and hopefully time permitting we'll finish tonight, the petition itself is expressed. And you see it comes in several parts as per your handout. The petition itself is expressed. First, the request itself, the request proper, if you will, that he might grant you to be strengthened in the inner man. That's verse 16. The second aspect of the request is the result so that, you, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts, verse 17. Third, the purpose that you may be able to comprehend, and that's verse 18. The result of that is, and so to know Christ's love in verse 19. And finally, the purpose that, is, that follows that result, that you might be filled up to all the fullness of God. And that's chapter 3, verse 19, the second half. Now, yes, this, this prayer has a very, may I call it, intricate structure. Paul was a very deep thinker. And when Paul prayed, he realized to whom he was speaking. And so he apparently he obviously thought this one out before he prayed it. And so, yes, it is a fairly complicated structure, but it's a beautiful structure. And it's the structure of a, it's the prayer structure of a man who truly loved the Lord and was himself mature. So we can learn a lot about praying from, from observing one of the, one of the, mas the great masters in Christianity with a little m, one of the great masters' prayers. I've had the occasion on a, a many times to go to great museums, Chicago and, and New York and the Louvre in, in, in Paris and the Musée d'Orsay in Paris, and I've never been to one of those museums that I didn't see people sitting there. You, sometimes they're by themselves, and sometimes they're in a group with their own um, pads and their own drawing instruments or their own painting instruments, and they would look, they would be sitting in front of the, one of the great masterpieces. And they would be studying it. I mean, they would just really ab absorb themselves in it. They would look at the structure and the colors and all the things that the great masters did. And then they would attempt to recreate that. And I thought of that today as I was, as I was considering us looking into Paul's prayer life here. What we have here is the structure of a, of a very mature believer's prayer. So not only do we want to get the information from us, but we can sit and read it in awe as an example of one who knew what they were doing when they, prayed, when they prayed. So thus far, Paul has mentioned the Father in verse 14. We saw last week that he mentioned the Holy Spirit in verse 16. 
And today he will mention the Son quite often in the rest of the prayer. So just like he did in chapter 1 where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were mentioned in that long sentence, verses 3 through 14, here again Paul mentions all three members of the Trinity in this particular prayer. Again, as per our study last week, the request itself was that you might be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, in the inner man. This is the core of the request. Paul was fully aware that there would be no unity in the church at Ephesus, no unity in the body of Christ, no unity in Pine Valley Bible Church without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, without divine enablement. We can't expect to live a life that pleases God without God's help. That was one of the primary issues last week. We cannot expect to lead a life that pleases God without God's help. And so many people try to do that. So many, so many people try to live a, a God-pleasing life under what we would call the energy of the flesh. And we have to watch this. I, I think most everybody in the room knows what I mean when, I'm re, when I refer to the flesh. Not necessarily everybody outside the Christian community, or even outside the evangelical community, or outside the Bible-believing community is going to understand that. So we need to be careful, I know, with our terminology and not act like we're speaking a different language. But I think you know what I mean by living a life under the empowerment of the flesh as opposed to the empowerment of the of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it. We can't live a life that pleases God without it. We cannot, the believer cannot accomplish God's purpose apart from divine enablement. Now that, that whole idea can be a bit humbling to realize that we can't do it without God, but it can also be a bit enabling. In fact, it can be very exciting and empowering to us as well once we realize we can't do it. So rather than just give up when we realize we can't do it, we need to give up on using our own energy and our own ingenuity and our own intellect and thinking, thinking we can go out there and do stuff for God and then, to use a biblical word, yield to the Holy Spirit or submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit or fall down on our knees and say, God, I can't do it, but I know you can. Where do you want to send me? What is it you want me to do? And then get up and do it. So it can be a very liberating thing as well. The Christian way of life, then, as we said last week, is one of a moment-by-moment -moment reliance upon the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit to guide us, to instruct us, and to empower us to accomplish God's will through us. To guide us, to instruct us, and to empower us to, to, to fulfill God's will through us. So coming face-to-face face face with our own inadequacy is both humbling and it's also liberating. In verse 17, we find the intended result of the request. And again, if you have a hard time following this, look at your Bibles and also look at the handout that I gave you, and hopefully you'll see the structure as we walk through this. The result of this empowerment, this prayer for empowerment, is so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is related to, but not identical to, the indwelling of Jesus Christ in the body of every believer. That ministry, the indwelling ministry of Jesus Christ, is a permanent one. What Paul is referring to here is something different. Because Paul is praying for believers that it might be a reality. Lewis Berry Chafer used to teach something like this. He said, we never get more of the Holy Spirit than we have at the moment we place our faith in Jesus Christ. And that's true. What happens as we walk in fellowship with God, and as we mature in our relationship with God, is that the Holy Spirit gets more of us. You see the difference? 
We never get more of the Holy Spirit than we have at the very moment we accept Jesus Christ. So to, so to pray that we would get more of the Spirit, as some people do, that's not a valid prayer. Well, we might pray that the Spirit would have His way with us, that the Spirit would get more of us. Now, in the same way, we, you're not going to ever get more of the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. We'll never get more of Jesus Christ than we have at the moment that we exercise faith in Christ. But as we mature and as we say yes to God and no to ourselves, Jesus Christ is going to get more of us. When we say yes to him and no to ourselves, he has his way with us. It's the same, the same principle. This passage speaks, then, not of the possibility of losing or diminishing the, the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, but of the indwelling Christ himself having a fuller expression of his will through the believer. Do you see the difference? It's not that we get more of Christ, but that the indwelling Christ himself will have a fuller expression of his will through the believer. So it's a parallel to what Schaefer talked about when he spoke of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, I guess we should stop here and note, this is a very important note, that the Christian walk is one of faith. And so that's why Paul says in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Again, this is not, this is not initial salvation. He's been long past that. Paul's talking about unity among believers within the body of Christ. So this is not talking about our initial salvation. This is talking about our experiential sanctification. You see, the, the Christian way of life or experiential sanctification is a life of faith. Or if you prefer, it's a life of faithful obedience. It's not simply a life of confession. Sometimes we get so bored in on, on one particular issue that we forget a, a bigger picture. It's not simply, the Christian way of life is not just simply going from confession to confession to confession. Certainly confession of sin is an issue. Of course it's an issue. It's a huge issue. But confession of sin is a starting point in our spiritual lives. It's not the final destination. Confession of sin does restore the believer to fellowship. But there ought to be something that happens once that believer is restored to fellowship. It needs to be a, faith, a walk of faithful, faithful obedience to God. So in a very real way, we are saved by grace through faith. And in the same very real way, we also live our life experientially before God by grace through faith. So faith, both grace and faith have an incredible parts to play in both experiential sanctification and in positional sanctification. Christian maturity is a result of a moment-by-moment -moment faithful reliance upon God for enlightenment and empowerment to accomplish His purpose through us. So Paul's petition is that we might be strengthened so that Christ may dwell in our hearts. Again, I refer you to the chart that you have in front of you if, you ha if you're having trouble following his line of thought. His petition is that we might be strengthened so that Christ may dwell in our hearts. And this petition is speaking of our, not of our positional sanctification, but of our experiential sanctification. Now, the term cardia, you, you already know that term. It's a Greek term, but it's a Greek term for heart. If you've if you've uh, had any kind of problems with your heart, you know you went to a cardiologist, and you may have a, a cardiac, uh, cardiac inf uh, myocardial infarction. That's not a good thing to have. It usually means a lot of times the, 
first symptom for that one is your only symptom that you ever get to have, and that's death. But, or you may have the cardiomyopathy. If, that, those are terms that refer to the heart. The term cardia refers to the heart. And here it relates to the very core of a person. And it's synonymous with the phrase inner man that we saw in verse 16. Remember verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in his spirit in the inner man. Now Paul is using a synonym for that term inner man now when he says heart, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. He's, you could, he could have said it, heart begin in, in the beginning and inner man now, but it's the same, it's the same principle. Used this way, the heart can either be the center of a person where there's enlightenment, when used positively, or it can be a place where hardness exists when used negatively. So the, the, when, when the term heart is used, in and of itself, it, it's not a positive or negative term, but we have to see the terms around it that are going to tell us whether it's a positive or negative sense. So here it's certainly a positive sense. So Paul's prayer so far, that we might be strengthened by the Holy Spirit, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts. Again, not the, not the initial indwelling. You're, you're not in danger of losing that. But so that the indwelling Christ himself may have a fuller expression of his will through the believer. You see the difference? Okay. Both the petition and the intended result speak to the issue of positional sanctification, or rather experiential sanctification, which is the maturing process for the believer and his walk in his, his, walk in his fellowship with God. But why this specific request? We have to ask ourselves that. Why, this, why is this prayer recorded at all? And why is this the specific request for these people at this particular time in history? And what does this specific request that's given for the Ephesian church at a particular time in history, why is it recorded as Scripture for us today? What difference does it make? Well, it makes a huge difference. There's a purpose here so that you may be able to comprehend. More specifically, so that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. So first, so that we'll be strengthened. Second, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Third, so that we could comprehend something. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Now, that's, that almost sounds very poetic, and it sounds really neat and cool, but what does it mean? And why pray that right now? The key phrase here in this section of the prayer, the first purpose, is the, is the term to comprehend. To comprehend. What Paul deeply desires is that we fully comprehend the immensity of Christ's love. He deeply desires that we fully comprehend the immensity of Christ's love. But in order to do that, we must be rooted and grounded in love ourselves. But again, why this request and why right now? Well, remember, Paul is speaking of unity within the body of Christ. And we've, we've already seen how he, he begins to lay out the, his argument for unity. We saw that back in chapter 2 when, when Paul spoke of our position in Christ individually and corporately. We all got there the same way. And nobody deserved it any more 
than anybody else. So he's, he is praying now that what he is, the foundation that he has laid would become a reality because one of these days we would get it through our, our thick skulls just how much God loves us. But that's not all. We need to get through our thick souls just how much God not only loves me, but how much he loves you. And if I realize that you are one for whom Christ also died, and that Christ loves you every bit as much as he loves me, then I'm going to be a little less selfish in my interaction with you because I'm going to realize you're God's child too. And if I say an unkind word to you, our Heavenly Father is not going to appreciate that very much, just like, just like in, a, in a nuclear family at home. You know, parents love all the children equally, even if, even if one is not necessarily walking and is in fellowship with that, with that parent as much as another child. And those of you that have multiple children and maybe some that aren't walking in fellowship, you know you still love that child who's not walking in fellowship. And you know that you don't particularly care for it. You may put up with it, but you don't particularly care for it with one of the children that you're walking, that is walking in fellowship with you, just maligns unmercifully the one who's not. In fact, most of the time, as a human parent, you know what we'll do? We'll end up taking up for the one that's not even walking in fellowship because we don't like seeing them hurt by one of our other children. Well, we're this way as human beings. Don't you know God's that way too? Jesus Christ died for all. And he loves all of his children with an intense love. And Paul wants us to recognize the immensity of Christ's love, not only for us, but for all of the saints. Now, spiritual strengthening is necessary for us to be rooted and grounded in love. Love ourselves, which is a prerequisite then for our being able to comprehend Christ's love. Now, this is a part of this passage that, while complicated, is enormously, enormously important. And I want to explain to you why I believe that it is. It's enormously important for our understanding of our own spiritual lives. So if, if you're wondering what's in it for me, this is what's in it for you. This is huge. Spiritual strengthening is necessary for us to be rooted and grounded in love. And being rooted and grounded in love ourselves is a prerequisite for me ever coming close to comprehending the immensity of Christ's love for us. These metaphors, rooted and grounding, are both perfect participles. One is an agricultural metaphor, and the other one is an architectural meta metaphor, but both are perfect participles, which emphasize the present result of a past action. And that's big. The present result of a past action. So for us, here's, the, here's what I would call the bottom line. For us to be able to come close to comprehending, comprehending the immensity of Christ's love, watch, we already have to be rooted and grounded in love ourselves. It's something that has got to have already taken place. This is terminology here in this passage that is used to describe one who has been in the faith for some period of time and has grown past the infant stage of their own spiritual lives. Let me just say it. 
a believer who is in spiritual infancy, either because they have not been a believer for very long or they've been a believer for an extended period of time and have chosen, freely chosen, not to immerse themselves in the Word and to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, one who is in spiritual infancy is going to be in no position to comprehend the immensity of Christ's love. No matter how much you sing about it, no, more, no matter how much you dance or scream or holler or say the same things over and over and over again, and I've been in cultures that do this. Sometimes people say, where does he get that from? Well, I get it from observing it. I've been in cultures where most of the believers are spiritual infants, yet they scream at the top of their lungs of Christ's love. But if you talk to them about that love, they really know nothing of it. And this passage tells us why. In order to understand the, in, the immensity, the magnitude of God's love for us, we already have to be rooted and grounded in love ourselves. Once we have moved down a bit, at least, the road to Christian maturity, we'll be able to, or perhaps even better, we'll have the strength to comprehend the vastness of Christ's love for us. The phrase here, with all the saints, that's not a throw-in phrase. That indicates, once again, that Christian growth occurs in the context of community. Again, so that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. With all the saints indicates that we're in this together. Whether we like it or not, whether it fits our personalities or not, whether we would prefer to be a lone wolf or not, we are in this in community. In, in, a, in a similar way, we're in community in our cities, in our neighborhoods, in our country. Our, our nation is a community. And with, without a, a community of individuals in a nation, a nation is not going to have a decent economy. A nation is not going to win a war unless people pull together. No one individual wins a war. George Washington was a magnificent leader. Made some mistakes, to be sure. He wasn't the, he wasn't the most intellectual of people. He wasn't the greatest uh, person with regard to strategy. He wasn't the greatest person with regard to, to tactics. But he was a person who persevered, and he persevered, and he persevered. And he led our country to victory in the war for independence. But he'd be the first person to tell you he didn't do it by himself. He did that in the concept of a community. Well, the local church is the concept of a community as well. It's not just local church, but the church universal, but certainly in the local church. And this phrase, with all the saints, indicates that Christian growth occurs in the context of community. Again, Christian growth occurs in the context of community. Now, exceptions exist. Of course they do. Certain people that don't have the opportunity to enjoy Christian community. But the norm, the norm is for growth to occur within the context of community. And biblically, what I'm talking about now, biblically with, with regard to this growth, is the context of the local church, more specifically, the context of the local church. That's where real spiritual growth will occur. Now, as we move into the 21st century, there has been, at least in my observation, a massive push away from the local church and toward parachurch ministries to fulfill this function of community and spiritual growth. 
Now, if you don't know what I mean by, by parachurch, I mean organizations or groups operating alongside of the local church, but outside of the leadership structure of the local church. That's what I mean by parachurch ministry. One that is, uh, one that, I'm, and I'm not, I'm not using the term parachurch and illegitimate in the same phrase. Not at all. Some people do. Some things, anything that's outside the local church is not legitimate. I don't feel that way. Uh, for example, Dallas Seminary is a, is a parachurch ministry. And I am in 100% support of Dallas Seminary and other seminaries as well. But there's been a massive push, or there is a massive push, and I don't know who's pushing, but there's a massive push toward parachurch ministries to fulfill the function of community. People are moving away from the leadership structure of local church and, and to parachurch ministries. And, we'll just, and, and there are many other parachurch ministries that are, that are out there besides seminaries. I just mentioned that one. Uh, there are Bible study groups and um, missionary organizations or parachurch ministries. And, and so there are many, many, many. You can fill in your own blanks. And now we're going to have to wait and see how this all works out. But that's the reality, a, a reality of a move away from the local church into parachurch ministry. Whether that's going to be good or not, we'll just have to wait and see. Now, the phrase, the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. This is kind of a geometric idea that we have in our minds. And that phrase indicates some form of measurement, does it not? It's kind of given us an idea of how big, how immense, how the magnitude of a particular thing. Now, there is some debate as to what is being measured there. But it seems to me to be contextually the love of Christ. That's why I've used the phrase the immensity of the love of Christ so far in our time together tonight. So, again, the request is that he might grant you to be strengthened in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in our hearts so that we may be able to comprehend just how immense Christ's love is for us. Do you see the steps? Strengthening, maturity, comprehension. Strengthening maturity, comprehension. Now, this, this love, which in verse 19, this immensity, this incredible love of Christ is going to surpass knowledge. No human being, no, no matter who you are, no matter who we are, has the unaided ability to fully comprehend the love of Christ. No human being. It can be studied. It can be categorized, but it cannot be comprehended apart from divine enablement coupled with spiritual growth. Again, my point is here that we're not going to come to the position where we even have a, a partial comprehension, a re reasonable comprehension of the immensity of God's love for us, Christ's love for us, until we've moved down the road of, of, of our Christian walk just a bit. This isn't going to happen overnight. The, 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 the Christian's experiential sanctification is a step-by-step -step process that takes place over years. We've become so accustomed. There's, there's one really, really well-known church in, out in California that has a, has a four-step process for experiential sanctification. And they use a, a baseball diamond to, to illustrate it. And you know, I, there, there may be some good things about it, but it always has baffled me. You, you go to first, you lose, you learn these doctrines, and you get to first base. Then they got a set of doctrines for second base, 
And then when you get to, uh, those learn, and you go to third base, and you have a different set of doctrine, then by the time you come home, you're, you're expected to be finished with your learning of the Word of God, and then you start teaching other people. And that process can take place anywhere from a couple, two, three months to six months or so, and you, you got it down. I, I, just don't th- I just don't see it happening that way. Uh, maybe some, for some real um, unusual people it might. Maybe for some people who are under an intense persecution it might, but typically there's going to have to be a pressure cooker to allow a person to grow in maturity in their relationship with Christ that fast. It, it's, there's more to it than first, second, third base, and then coming home. It takes a lifetime, and you know that. Most of you have been in, we won't take a show of hand, but, but uh, many of you at least have been in the Word of God for decades, not just for months. And I think if we were to, and we're not going to, but if we were to, to have a, a time here where we all gave our testimonies, I think every single one of us would be more than happy to stand and give our testimony that, whoops, listen, i got a long way to go. There's many, many things. There are many, many things that I don't understand that I need to understand, and we would also recognize that understanding needs to come before the application. Knowledge needs to come before the, before the application. So we all want to do better. It seems to me the Apostle Paul wanted to do better all the way up until the very end. It's not until the very, very end where he says, I finished this thing. But even at the end, you know what he sent for, don't you? He sent for his coat and for the parchment. Yeah, he, he still, he thought, I talked to a lady one time. She's with the Lord now, so it doesn't matter who it is. But she told me, I don't need, I, I know enough. I already know enough. I said, no, you don't, or you wouldn't say that. Of course, it didn't, didn't go over too well. But, but no, you don't, or you wouldn't say that. Because the people that may be coming close to knowing enough would never say something like that. Because they know that with regard to our knowledge of God, it is minuscule compared to the way God really is. So no, no person who has, with, with, say, unaided reason or an unaided intellect can even come close to fully comprehending the love of Christ. And, in fact, even someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit may not be able to fully comprehend in a one-to-one cor- correspondence because you'd have to be Christ himself. But it can be studied, it can be categorized, but it can't be comprehended in any way apart from divine enablement coupled with spiritual growth. Now, there's a final phrase here expressing purpose so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. This is a beautiful phrase. It's a very rich phrase, and it's, uh, it's an appropriate way for Paul to close out this portion of the prayer. In this context, in the particular context of this prayer, to be filled up to the fullness of God is to know the immensity of the love of Christ. In context, and in the specific context, when Paul says to be filled up to all the fullness of God, it means to know the immensity of the love of Christ. No believer will ever be 100% filled up with all the fullness of God. That's reserved for God alone. That's that's the terminology used of Christ himself. But we can live out experientially that which we are positionally. The maturing Christian, the maturing Christian's experience will be one of functioning love, enlightened and empowered by God himself. You see, that's what this, uh, there's, there's so much discussion, and we're going to come back to this at a later time, of what this idea of filling means, to be filled up to the measure, or to be filled in, in any way. And D.A. Carson, the New Testament scholar from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, speaks of the, the, the filling in this sense as 
as enablement or an empowerment or an influence that Christ has on us, that the Holy Spirit has on us, in order to fully comprehend God's love. So this is an important phrase. It's going to come up again, I believe, or at least the concept's going to come up again in chapter 5. We'll mention it quite a bit more when that happens. But the, the final purpose, the purpose of all this, as far as Paul is concerned, is that we might be filled up to all the fullness of God. That we might be filled up to all the fullness of God. And in context, this filling up with all the fullness of God is comprehending, having a, an appropriate comprehension of the immensity of God's love for us. Now, that shouldn't shock us at all. Because Paul says when he writes one of his letters to Timothy that the goal of his instruction is love. The, the, when Paul writes his letter to the Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is the very first one, love. And I think that's the one through, that all the rest of them, through, through which they all flow. It helps us to understand Jesus' statement in the upper room that by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Not, not if you're a, an intellectual genius. Not, not if you can reason your way around things. Not, not if you can recite all the major doctrines of the faith, while all that's good and all of that is necessary. It's not an option, it's necessary. But people are going to know you're my disciples if you love one another, which means if love's the ultimate application of everything Paul taught, then I think we can safely make the step to say love's the ultimate application of everything that the Bible teaches for us personally. If we, if we were to say that, it simplifies the Christian life just a bit. Doesn't it? It ought to. If I'm not acting in love toward you, then I'm not then I'm not I'm not behaving in the way that I ought to behave. If I'm not acting in love toward you or you to me, then we're not representing ourselves appropriately as disciples of Jesus Christ. He's the one that loved more than anybody else to begin with. He demonstrated his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, he died as a substitute. For us. So the, the term that he used in the upper room, or the phrase, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another, finds its fulfillment in those who are filled up to all the fullness of God. Those are people who are committed disciples of Jesus Christ. So the result that he might grant you to be strengthened in the inner man, the, I'm sorry, the request, the result so that Christ may dwell in your hearts, purpose so that you would be able to comprehend the result of that is so you would know Christ's love and the purpose so that you would be filled up to all the fullness of God. In summary, Paul's prayer is that God would strengthen the Ephesians and by extension us in the inner man, that he would strengthen us in the inner man, resulting in Christ effectively dwelling in us for the purpose that they and us being rooted and grounded in love, might be able to comprehend within the context of the Christian community the immensity of Christ's love so that we might be filled up to all the fullness.